Well, we are starting a new series today. We have been taking the last number of months to go through the book of Galatians, one verse at a time, one chapter at a time. Uh, I think it took us probably four to six months, something like that. Um, and so we are starting a new series in First and Second Samuel. Um, today's g- going to be a little bit different than normal. Like normal, normally we take one at a time, one verse at a time, or in this case, chapter at a time, and section at a time. We look at it, and what does it say? But today is going to be a little bit different because I'm going to actually do an overview of First and Second Samuel, also known as an overview of the entire Old Testament also known as an overview of the entire Bible. So to take one thing at a time, um, it's just going to be a little, we're not going to do that. It's going to be a little bit different. There'll be a few passages that I refer to, um, but, but overall what we want to, f- try, well, the question we're going to ask today is we're going to try to figure out what is the purpose of the Old Testament and what is the purpose of the New Testament? Um, why should we even bother to study the Old Testament, let alone First and Second Samuel? We like to go to those narratives, right? First and Second Samuel, oh, it's story, great. Yeah, it's a narrative, great. But we skip over, you know, like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy because they're just a bunch of numbers and, and, and who died and who was born and how long did they live and how much mold can you have in the corner of your house and we just kind of skip over that because we go, oh, it's not really that important to us. But it, it is important to us. So why do we study the Old Testament post-cross? And as some people say, after all, the New Testament speaks of Christ, the cross, the work of the Holy Spirit in, in the church, which is much more applicable today to us, right, in the church than the Old Testament is. The Old Testament's full of judgment and lie uh, rules. The New Testament is full of love and grace. This is a, some of the things that I have heard over my life. Maybe I've even said it or you've said these things to yourselves like, ah, I mean, I prefer the New Testament. It's more joy-filled. The Old Testament's just a bunch of judgment. The problem with that is people who said that have not really read in depth, I think, the New Testament because there is a gosh darn lot of judgment happening Lots of judgment is happening in the, in the New Testament. So why do we study the Old Testament? Well, the truth is, is that we cannot fully understand the depth of the richness of the New Testament without the Old Testament. Now, let me say that again. We can't fully understand the depth of the richness and the beauty in the New Testament or of the Old Te- New Testament without the Old Testament. During the ministry of Christ, those initial years of the ministry with the apostles, there was no New Testament. Those books had not been written yet. The only scripture they had was the Old Testament. When after Jesus' resurrection and he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus began with Moses and the prophets quote, interpreting to them all in, the, all in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Well, what was that scriptures? What was Jesus explaining? He was explaining the Old Testament, not the New Testament. 
And what about the New Testament names for Jesus? You've got the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the Scapegoat, the Anointed One, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of Man. Where do those names come from? They come from the Old Testament. You see, we cannot fully understand the beautiful truths of the New Testament while ignoring or skimming over the Old Testament. And so we strive here at Elm Creek to, we'll spend time in a New Testament book, and then we'll jump to an Old Testament book, and then we'll go to a New Testament book, and then we'll go to an Old Testament book. And we do that on purpose to see the connection between the new and the old. So here's what we're going to do today. First, we're going to We'll be looking at the big picture. We want to be technical. The meta-narrative for you English geeks out there, okay? The meta-narrative, the big story, the big picture. And we're going to quickly work through the history leading up to First and Second Samuel and then hit the highlights of these two books. And then finally, we're going to wrestle with the problem that is addressed in the books, where the solution lies, and then we're going to end with answering our initial question, why should we even bother to know and to study First and Second Samuel? So, big picture. You guys ready? This is a very quick overview. The book of Genesis. At the beginning of Genesis, the world is created. Adam and Eve sin against God, and the once perfect creation is contaminated with sin and death. And in his curse against Satan, God hints at a future descendant of Eve who would fight Satan and win, restoring and redeeming all things as they once were. And then Adam dies. Fast forward a few generations. There was an increased corruption on the earth, but a man named Noah is called a righteous and blameless in his generation, Walking with God, it says in Genesis 6-9, just as Adam and Eve once did in the garden. He had a special relationship with God. And as God destroys the corruption, uh, the corrupt world through the flood, he saves Noah and his family through the ark. But eventually, Noah dies. Many generations after Noah, a simple pagan man comes into the picture, Abraham. Abraham is chosen by God to travel to a special land where Abraham's descendants will one day live. This promise is believed by Abraham, even though he has no descendant, and he and his wife are beyond the age of conceiving a child. Yet, Scripture tells us that because Abraham believed God's promise, God counted him righteous and just in his sight. Abraham has Isaac, and Abraham dies. Isaac has Jacob, and Isaac dies. Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is named Joseph. He's sold into slavery in Egypt, eventually becoming second in charge only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph saves his family from starvation, from annihilation, saves the people of God from being wiped off the face of the earth by famine so that one day... Abraham's offspring would inherit the promised land, just as God said. But then, like Abraham, like Isaac, Jacob dies, and then Joseph dies without seeing God's promise fulfilled. 
400 years later, now we're in the book of Exodus. You're like, man, it's take forever. It, it goes fast from here, I promise, okay? 400 years later, God raises a man named Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery. In the desert, God meets with them at a mountain, giving them commands and laws. The people agree to obey his laws. That's the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I told you we're going to go through them pretty fast. Only to disobey them the first chance that they get. <laughs> That's just the way God's people work. But Moses intervenes on their behalf, asking God not to destroy his people. Remember your promise. These are your people, he says to God. And then Moses dies, seeing the promised land, but never, never able to enter into it. Then we get to the book of Joshua. A man named Joshua, who is strong and courageous, leads the people of Israel through the conquest of Canaan, as God drives the people out before them. He follows and obeys God, teaching and exhorting the people to follow His example. Fight after fight, battle after battle, the people of God prevail, but in the end, they fail to drive out all the people of Canaan, opening themselves up to false spiritual and religious influence. Eventually, Joshua dies. Are you guys seeing a pattern here? He dies along with all in his generation, and the people of God become oppressed under the power of their enemies. And then we get to the book of Judges. God has not forgotten his promises, even if the people have. He raises up judges to lead his people back to worship of him. Some of these judges remain godly and obedient to the end. They lead well, but eventually all of them falter. And the roller coaster ride for the people of Israel begins. A judge is raised up. The people follow God. The judge dies or fails in his responsibilities. And the people fall into sinful rebellion against God, eventually becoming subject to their enemies. The people cry out to God, and he raises up a judge to lead them, only for the people to once again fail and fall into sinful rebellion after the judge's death and rebellion. And that's the book of Judges. Up down, up, down, up, down. Like, we studied it on a Monday night, and by the end, we were all like, we know how this is going to work out, right? It's like, why do we have to keep doing it? The repetition is on purpose. The repetition over and over of the failure of God's people, and yet the faithfulness of God to continue to raise up a judge to lead them. And then in the middle of this chaos, this up and down, this frustration if you're reading it. In the middle of the book of Judges is a story of a woman named Ruth. Ruth is a pagan Gentile woman who leaves all that she had ever known to follow her mother-in-law Naomi back to Naomi's land, Israel. She places her faith in Yahweh, in God, eventually marrying a man named Boaz, and at the end of the book of Ruth, we're told that Ruth gives birth to a son. And this is how it reads in Ruth 4.17. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that brings us up to First and Second Samuel. Time after time, 
there is a hope that the descendants of Eve has finally come to restore all things to the way that it was before Adam's sinful rebellion against God. But each time that descendant was either disappointing or died, never really fulfilling the anticipation. Every time there was a, here he is, look, here he is, finally, this guy has shown up to restore all things. Ah, no, never mind. Nah, he didn't quite meet up to par. Or he died. He, he didn't stay alive. And so, as First and Second Samuel begins, the anticipation for that coming restorer, that coming redeemer, the one who would redeem God's people, it's alive, it's well, and they are ready for him to come. The book of First Samuel begins with Hannah, in a way, a representative of the nation of Israel itself. She is physically barren. She has no children, just as the people are spiritually barren of God. To be without children was seen as a curse, and the people felt like they were, uh, well, they were under a curse. And so Hannah longs for a child, one who would redeem her from her barrenness. And then God gives her Samuel. During that time, a man named Eli was a high, was high priest, a godly man who had a good heart, and he desired to obey God, but he was also a horrible father. His two sons were priests who stole from the sacrifices of the people to satisfy their own desires, perverting the worship of God. One day, in battle, the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The Ark is the throne of God, His seat from which He ruled His people. That's where He made His presence known. That's where He came down to speak to His people. So to have the throne of God captured was devastating to the people. It told them that God was no longer with them. In that battle, even, the sons of Eli die. And when Eli hears not of his son's death, but of the ark's capture, he falls off his chair and dies. And the wife of one of Eli's sons gives birth, calling the child Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed from Israel. Samuel grows up and eventually becomes judge, leading the people in worship and obedience to God. He turns them away from false worship to the true God. And like Eli, he has two sons. And like Eli, his sons were wicked. And seeing this, the people do not want Samuel's sons to become judges over them. And so they ask Samuel to give them a king. This is what they say. They want, they want to be like all the other nations around them. They want to have a king to rule over them. They want to have a king to go out and fight their battles against their enemies. And Samuel tries to talk them out of this, but God agrees to their request. You want a little trite piece of advice, watch what you ask God for. He might actually give it to you. He tells Samuel, God tells Samuel that the people have not rejected Samuel, but they have rejected him, Yahweh, as their king. And so God chooses Saul, who's taller and more handsome than any other in Israel. He's a good-looking guy, and he looked 
kingly. He looked like a king, like a, a ruler, and the people rejoiced. And at first, Paul was a or Saul was a great king, but eventually he dishonors God, disobeying strict commands for sacrifices. And so God strips the kingdom from Saul's hand and gives it to another in Israel. Where Saul looked like a king, his predecessor David, the great, great, great-grandchild of Ruth, didn't even have, didn't even look close to being kingly. So much so that when David's own father was shocked when David was chosen by God. But where Saul was arrogant and selfish, David was a man after God's own heart. Eventually, Saul is killed. There's another, nope, not quite. And David becomes king. Oh, here he is. Here's the Redeemer. Finally, we've got this guy on the throne. Israel flourishes and finally has the peace promised through Moses so many generations before. It seems that David might finally be that long-awaited descendant to redeem all things. And then David sees Bathsheba, and so begins David's downfall. He repents of his sins of adultery and murder, but the consequences are unavoidable. Civil war, broken family, plagues, and eventually David dies. The hopes of the Redeemer once again dashed. Nope, David ain't it. David's son Solomon becomes king. Wealth and peace flourish in Israel, and it seems that the promised Redeemer was again finally here. But once again, no. Solomon dies, and the kingdom of Israel is divided in two. And then the rest of the Old Testament is mostly bad stuff. I mean, there's some good intermingled with that, but it's, it could be pretty depressing. Read the Minor Prophets. But the people are taken into exile for their disobedience to God, but a remnant eventually returns. God always has a faithful remnant. And there's always this elephant in the room, the desire for the long-awaited Redeemer that at times seems to be there only for the people to be disappointed. There's always a yes, no, yeah, no. Is he, he, no, no, he's not here. So going back to First and Second Samuel, what's the problem in First and Second Samuel? It's not that the people chose a king over a judge. It's that they rejected God in doing so. The Old Testament is a lesson for the people. Faithfully obey God and be blessed. Have God be your king and he will rule justly and rightly over you. But reject God and face the consequences. But First and Second Samuel actually offer us a solution too to this problem. If the problem is, is the rejection of God, the solution is there too. And that elephant in the room, the desire for the descendant of Eve who will restore and redeem all things is there for a reason. God is always faithful and His promises are always true. Each of the leaders who seem to be yes all eventually ended up being nope, not quite. 
building the anticipation year after year, generation after generation, to where it finally got to the point where the people, by the end of the Old Testament, they've, beginning of the New Testament, I should even say, they've kind of given up on the Messiah. All leading up to the time in the New Testament, what is the solution to the problem of Israel's rejection of God? A Redeemer. That's what the New Testament is about. You've, you've heard me say this before. The Bible is not about me. The New Testament has great things in it to help us to grow in our faith, to know ourselves better and who we are as God's people, how to have salvation, how to be justified, how to be sanctified, how to be redeemed, all those things. But it's not about me. The New Testament is about the Redeemer. All of it is about the Redeemer. In fact, I'll even go back. The Old Testament is about the Redeemer, not a Redeemer, the Redeemer. And His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Those in the Old Testament all anticipated the coming of this Redeemer, but none of them saw it. None of them. But where every other quote-unquote king failed, Christ the King of kings, the Lord of lords, succeeded. Where every other king was imperfect, Jesus was perfect. Where every other king failed to obey God, Jesus perfectly obeyed. We need to know and study the books of Samuel and the whole of the Old Testament in order to see God's faithfulness to His promise of bringing the true King. Don't overlook the Old Testament. Don't see the Old Testament as boring law or exciting stories. It is actual truth from God Himself, His Word spoken to us to point us to Him, not to us, not even to the church, but to Him and to His faithfulness, the true King, Jesus Christ. You see, the last verse of the book of Judges reads, in those days there was no king in Israel. So you have, you have Judges and then Ruth and then First and Second Samuel, but remember what I said, Ruth is taking place during the, the book of Judges? So the last verse in Judges is actually the very last verse before you get to 1 Samuel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest, I, I see that true today too. There are churches quote-unquote churches, I'll use that. There are people who claim to be Christians. They do have a king, and it's probably themselves, or it's the church, or it's something outside of Christ. They cry out, Lord, Lord, but on the last day, Christ will say, I don't know who you are. Who, who are you again? well, Lord, I did this and I did that and I did this. And he says, yeah, but I don't know who you are. You didn't bow down to me as your king. 
You didn't believe the gospel message. You were stuck in your own little kingdom. And you did what was right in your own eyes. I ex- Maybe I should say I. As the church, we should expect the world to do what is right in their own eyes. Those who don't believe, those who reject Christ outright, they want nothing to do with God. That makes sense. They have not experienced or known the love or the joy or the peace and the patience, the kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. We get that. We expect that. And we pray for them. And we hurt for them. But I'll be honest, as a pastor, people in the church who bow down to everything else and they don't know the King of Kings. Or preachers who preach and they never speak the name of Christ or the gospel message. They are leading people astray, even if it's great, wonderful, moralistic things. In the end, there is only one king. His name is Jesus. And as his people, as we go through the book of Samuel, it's easy for us to say, well, if I was there, I wouldn't choose a king. I would choose God. We like to put ourselves in, or here, I'll say, we like to think we're David in David and Goliath. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we're probably more like Goliath or the nation and the, the army of Israel who's cowering behind their tents. We need to look at ourselves, yes, but we need to turn from ourselves and look at the king. All of the Old Testament, all of Samuel, points us to the one king who has been revealed in Jesus Christ, the true redeemer, the one who was foretold way at the beginning when God promised that a descendant of Eve will rise and stamp on the head of the snake even as he's bitten by the snake. That bite, by the way, is the cross. But he didn't stay on the cross. All the other redeemers, all the other kings that everybody was looking to died and they never came back to life. But the one true redeemer died for three days and he was raised again. And he's ascended into heaven. He's sitting on the throne of God and what's going to happen? He's going to come back. And like the people in the Old Testament who anticipated, oh, is this Redeemer coming? Is He coming? Is He coming? Is He coming? We as God's people, we've, we know He's already been here, but we're anticipating, when is He coming back? When is He coming back? Oh, I can't wait for Him to come back. And as the time goes on and the world seems to be falling to the wayside and falling apart and we can start to become depressed, we can start to be like the people of Israel and forget God's promises are true. He is faithful even when we are not. And he says, I am coming back. At a time that you will never know, like a thief in the night, he will suddenly show up and every knee on earth will bow to him whether they like it or not. God is faithful to his promise. 
It points us beyond ourselves to the Redeemer, the one who, only one who saves by grace through faith, but the one who will come back and restore all things under his authority and rule and power and glory and honor and praise. Jesus Christ. Part of, well, I guess, let me just say it this way. What, what I'd, I'd love for us to, to do today during communion is to remember this truth, to remember Christ is coming back. He says, when he is standing before his disciples and he's telling them, which, by the way, the communion, the communion table is the Passover table of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. The blood was put on the door so that the angel of death would pass over. Christ says, remember this. Remember who I am. I am the Passover lamb. I am the one who is to be sacrificed. My blood is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins so that death passes over you and you are made God's people and you find eternal life. That's why God says, that's why Christ says, remember this. Not just so that we can have another rule to follow. The Jews had plenty of rules to follow. But for us as Christians, when we take the communion, may we remember who Christ is. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Redeemer. And for those of us who believe, those of us who are His children, those who, of us who are um, uh, redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are His people, then we stand back and we marvel and we praise and we glorify God because of it. There's no magical salvation that happens if you take communion. You're already saved if you're a child of God. But being in obedience to Christ and as we remember what He did to us and for us as His people, there is something that happens. There is this joy and this grace and this love that when we remember and we say, God, this is about you, my life is about you, may it be even more about you that we find joy in remembering what Christ did for us. And we strive to be more faithful to Him through His power, not ours. We were saved by His power, and we can live by His power. We can be in obedience to Him by His power. So if you are not a believer, if you have not given your, your life over to Christ, if you do not believe in Christ by God's grace, which is unmerited, nothing you could do to earn it, but you believe that Jesus is the Son, if you confess with your mouth that Christ died from, and rose from the grave, you will be saved, the Bible says. If you have yet to do that, we ask that you refrain because this is a serious thing to us as God's people. And the Bible warns very clearly, you take this in an unworthy manner. You are risking death by the hand of God. It's that serious. And so, take time, reflect, yes, but may our hearts be filled with joy as we go and grab uh, the drink, and then Dan hands you the, uh, the bread, and come back to our seat, and then as a family together, 
we will take this feast of Christ, remember together who Christ is in joy and in and, and love and beauty of who he is and who he has made us to be, that he is faithful, he is the redeemer, and he is our God. So whenever you are ready, go ahead and start your line and work your way back here, and then Dan will hand you the bread too.